0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: We all worry about climate tipping points when the ice caps, rainforests, or ocean currents shift towards a greenhouse world with no going back. From Berlin, scientist Nico Wunderling reveals tipping points can cascade, bringing extreme disruptions sooner. NASA's Kimberly Miner reports... As the Arctic thaws under unnatural heat, ancient organisms return to the biosphere, we don't know what they are, along with banned toxic chemicals and radioactive waste. The COP26 climate summit in Scotland is pretty anticlimactic. Real outcomes were determined a week earlier at the G20 summit in Rome, October 28th. Leaders representing 85% of the world's economic output And all of the big greenhouse gas emitters met behind closed doors without climate scientists or activists. All the big corporations and lobby groups were there, of course. Yesterday's men talked green and acted badly. In the United States, second president and coal owner Joe Manchin scuttled real climate action there. China promised to stop financing more coal power plants in other countries but will go ahead with its own big new coal plant construction binge. India is almost totally powered by coal, and Australia is happy to mine more and more of it. The fossil fuel companies explain their green plans they will keep pumping carbon into the atmosphere, into the 2050s, and beyond.
0: We are doomed.
1: Possibly the only substantive change from the G20 is support for cutting methane emissions. From fossil fuel production by thirty percent from twenty twenty, the record high levels, by the year twenty thirty. Nothing about the biggest human source of methane agriculture is talked about, and their plan is a drop in the bucket for ever increasing methane, which is eighty times more powerful than carbon dioxide in forcing warming. As you heard in last week's Radio shock show, methane is causing about one third of global warming and the extreme weather already striking around the world. Now, there are some plans by scientists to try and remove methane back to pre-industrial levels. Maybe it can be done. With the spotlight on methane, the UN Environmental Program and the EU announced a new international project to its lead watch where this key gas is coming from. The International Methane Emissions Observatory, IMEO, was launched at the G20 meeting in Rome. But this is no independent methane-measuring satellite pumping out real-time public data for all of us to look out on at the net. Most of the data will come from 74 fossil fuel companies who agreed to a reduction plan, but that's only 30% of oil and gas production worldwide. These are the good companies, I guess. We can trust them. The IMEO will add scientific data, but that is sparse and underfunded. Sorry, but this UN program is a patchwork. It's nowhere near what we need. Again. The harsh truth is, international action to stop the climate disaster is over before it begins. As Reuters Newswire reports, a week before it starts, COP26 has already received the last rights. That's the end of the quote from Reuters. The system is committed to extreme failure. That leaves it up to humans, you and me. To change the system, I guess? And our lives?
2: Brace for impact.
1: In this program we continue to explore what the failure of global leadership means on a living planet that doesn't care about greenwash. Radio EcoShock. We hear about big climate tipping points like melting ice at the poles or shifts in ocean currents. Parts of the Amazon rainforest may already be shifting towards grasslands, but what if these tipping points interact, feeding on one another? The title of a recent paper from European Scientists tells all, Interacting Tipping Elements Increase Risk of Climate Domino Effects Under Global Warming. The lead author is postdoctoral researcher Nico Wunderling. He works with the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, the Stockholm Resilience Center, and Princeton University. From Berlin, Nico Wunderling, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. I'm happy to be here.
1: Scientists like the famous Hans Schellenhuber identified three clusters of switchable states in nature and the critical temperatures that could tip them. It makes a good starting platform for your work, I think, Nico what are those tipping elements and the expected threshold temperatures they described?
2: Yeah, first of all, um, tipping elements are uh, subsystems in the Earth that are especially vulnerable due to, for instance, global warming. And an example of that are subsystems like the Greenland ice sheet, which could either exist in an ice-covered state or without an ice cover. And uh, the research that you have been mentioning is a research from 2016 where um Ricarda Winkelmann, and Stefan Ramsdorf have done a literature review summarizing the critical temperatures with respect to global warming of a whole set of tipping elements. And what they found is that there are basically three different um, clusters where the first cluster can already tip at temperatures around the Paris regime, or a bit higher, and parts of these cluster are the Western Arctic ice sheet, Greenland ice sheet, or Alpine glaciers. Then there is a second cluster that can, um, according to that literature review, tip at at around 3 to 4 degrees or a bit higher, and parts of that are the Amazon rainforest, the thermohaline circulation, or AMOC, and something like the El Nino-Southern Oscillation. And lastly, there's a third cluster of tipping elements, um, that is less constrained by literature, and that might or, might might still be alive at around 4 degrees above pre-industrial and can, o- can only tip at around 4 to 5 or even higher temperatures.
1: For this research, your team picks four major systems, Greenland and West Antarctic ice melt, the Amazon rainforest, and something called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, more popularly known as AMOC. In North America, they call it the Gulf Stream, why those ones, Nico?
2: Um, of course, that's a subset of all possible tipping elements. But for these four tipping elements, there has been a uh, interaction structure that has been found by earlier literature, and that's why we're focusing on these four tipping elements. However, we would like in the future, it would be very helpful to have a, to have a larger subset of interacting tipping elements. However, um, when we've done that research that has not been... That has not been known in its full structure.
1: Well, when you add more, it becomes more and more complicated. Already, you had to use like something like eleven million samples and thirty-seven or more different model setups. It was very complicated. So,
2: yeah, it, it indeed becomes a bit more difficult. But with this research, we're we're using a quite conceptual model that tries to simplify um, the dynamics of these tipping elements to their most basic form, so to say. And with that, it would be possible, in my view, to add another four or five. And um, when we designed that research, that was also one of the motivations why we did that, since the simplicity of the model allows for an easy add-up of further tipping elements. But, of course, you would need to know the interaction structure, and that's the current problem.
1: So how do we know systems like Greenland or Antarctic ice have two different states that can last for long, stable periods?
2: And there are basically two different strands of research that have, that have given us a glimpse on that. So, for instance, for the Greenland ice sheet, there is evidence from, from paleo records and from individual more complex models. So, for instance, in paleo times, some... 10,000 to 100,000 years ago, there have been times when the Greenland ice sheet has been partially or nearly completely been disintegrated or melted down during some of the earlier interglacials. for instance, that has been hypothesized. So that's something that we know from, from this paleo data. And there has been also models yeah, that are physics-based, that are where there are research groups that have developed more, more complex models of the Greenland ice sheet, and they have performed global warming scenarios and found a, a distinct decrease of the Greenland ice sheet if a certain temperature is surpassing global warming. And the same is true for, for the Western Arctic ice sheet.
1: Can we say Earth has already reached the critical temperature to tip these polar ice worlds towards unstoppable retreat?
2: Yeah, in, in my view, we're definitely we're around 1 to 1.1 degrees of global warming above the pre-industrial era and that means that we're indeed in something like a risk zone, right? So, for instance, the Greenland ice sheet has a critical temperature of around um, 0.8 to 3.2 degrees of, of global warming, so meaning that we have now surpassed one, up to 1.1 degrees of global warming means that it would be possible, but in the zone of uncertainty, that this ice sheet could, could start to tip now. However... Um, if the Greenland ice starts melting, then that would, for a full disintegration, that would take centuries to millennia. But we're surely now in the zone of risk.
1: If the North Atlantic currents are diverted further south, Europe gets colder, but ice melt on Greenland may also slow up. So does it matter which, which tipping element goes first?
2: Yeah, that would indeed matter. So maybe to give the example uh, between the Greenland ice sheet and the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, the AMOC, there are two important interaction mechanisms. So for instance, if the Greenland ice sheet would start melt, then there would be increased freshwater, less salty water influx into the North Atlantic. And that indeed might weaken the AMOC, while when the AMOC becomes weaker, as you said, there would be a reduction of warming over uh, the northern hemisphere and potentially also over Greenland, which might then hold the warming. But, but from saying that, you can already recognize that, that the starting point in such a tipping cascade, in such a potential tipping cascade, would be the Greenland ice sheet, since this one has a lower temperature threshold and would then be the reason of weakening the AMOC. But potentially, and that's what we cannot, what, what we cannot finally resolve, is uh, the possibility that the Greenland ice sheet starts melting and is then halted by a weakening AMOC. However, if one of these tipping elements would indeed transgress their threshold and disintegrate, then that would have uh, significant consequences.
1: Why do you call melting of the Greenland ice sheet a dominant initiator of cascades, and not just of AMOC, but possibly of other tipping elements far away in the world?
2: Yeah, in this subset of four tipping elements that that we have here, Greenland, AMOC, Amazon Rainforest, and Western Arctica, we found that when we find tipping cascades in our global warming scenarios, that most of them have been started by the Greenland ice sheet, meaning that in our timelines that we look at, the Greenland ice sheet seems to be or is the first one to melt, and from that, further upstream tipping elements are also starting to disintegrate or to weaken, So, for instance. Uh, the Western Arctic Ice Sheet, or the Amok, And that's why um, we can call the Greenland Ice Sheet a, or an, an initiator of tipping Cascades.
1: The only living system included in this study is the Amazon rainforest. Please tell us what new state could be reached there.
2: Yeah, potentially, um, due to climate change, but also due to deforestation, it could happen that the new state instead of the rainforest state that we have now would be something like a savanna or a less less um, forested state. And that can actually happen under, as I said, due to climate change and due to increased droughts, but also due to human-induced deforestation.
1: What is a tipping cascade, and what could it mean for the human economy, Nico?
2: A tipping cascade, as we understand it here, would be if one tipping element starts to tip, that draws and pulls along another tipping element. So to stay with the example of the Amazon rainforest, if, for instance, the, the AMOC starts tipping and becomes weaker, then it can happen that the intertropical convergence zone does shift. And with that, there are more frequent droughts in the Amazon rainforest. And that could then, could then um, change the precipitation patterns and lead to a dieback of Parts or even the entire Amazon rainforest. So a tipping cascade in that sense means that if one tipping element tips, another one is pulled along.
1: Uh, To be clear for our listeners, when a system tips, that is the beginning, not the end. For example, how long could it take for Greenland to reach that new stable state it is capable of?
2: Yeah, that's indeed a very important point to make here. If, for instance, the Greenland ice sheet starts tipping or starts melting then it can take centuries to millennia until the Greenland ice sheet would be disintegrated. However, and that's also important to note, is once the Greenland ice sheet has started to tip, it is not sufficient to just pull the forcing, the global warming, back to its original state, but you need to go further back since um, these tipping elements, they do have an hysteresis. And hysteresis means that once you have started a tipping point, it becomes more difficult to reverse it.
1: Yes, I noticed that your models do not include the possibility of these tipped systems going back to what they were, that there's no falling back in them.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, and this can, this can be um, justified, for instance, for the greenland ice sheet, because you can have this hysteresis effect, which means that, yeah, for instance, if you transgress the temperature threshold of greenland, let's say you're at around 3 degrees above pre-industrial, then start start tipping, and then reverse the temperature, if you can do that, to, let's say, 2 degrees of pre-industrial. But if you are too slow in doing that, then this is not sufficient to save the Greenland ice sheet since it has already started to disintegrate.
1: In an earlier 2009 study, Kragler et al. employed your four tipping elements, plus a fifth, the Pacific Ocean system known as ENSO. We on the ground experience ENSO as either the cooling La Nina happening this winter, or heat-releasing El Niño when many world record temperatures are set. Why was ENSO not included in your new study, or was
2: it? ENSO is a different kind of a tipping element. So while for the Greenland ice sheet, the AMOC, the Amazon Rainforest, and the Western Arctic ice sheet, it can be justified to use this bifurcation diagram, this hysteresis form of a tipping element, for the El Niño southern oscillation for ENSO, it is, this is not the case. This is a different kind of tipping element. In more technical terms, we would call that a Hopf bifurcation. It's not too important what that means, but it means, but in, in mathematical details, but um, simply spoken, it's a different kind of tipping element, and therefore we have included the Enzo only in our supplementary material to show that our main results uh, remain stable even if we add the Enzo.
1: I noticed that you mentioned something that I've been wondering about. Is it possible with global warming that the hot El Nino will come more often or even become a permanent fixture in the Pacific?
2: Yeah, that's the hypothesis that earlier research has made, that under global warming, the anzo can indeed become more frequent and in the worst case become become yeah, the permanent new state. And that would have very... Severe consequences, for instance, for the Amazon rainforest, since then there would be less rainfall, less precipitation. And again, the rainforest might then fall into a different, less forested state, such as the savanna state.
1: Could the ENSO oscillation going into an extreme state throw off the results of your study?
2: Well, it can. It can do that. If you take the same bifurcation diagram as for the other tipping elements, then we found that indeed the, for instance, the AMOC can trigger a um, persistent ANSU state, but only only when we have higher temperatures than, for instance, for the Greenland ice sheet or the Western Arctic ice sheet. So that can happen at around, in our model, at around three to four degrees above pre industrial. You're listening
1: to EcoShock Radio. For the world This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith, talking with Dr. Nico Wunderling in Germany. He led the paper Interacting Tipping Elements Increase Risk of Climate Domino Effects Under Global Warming. It was published in the EU's journal Earth System Dynamics. Nico, talk to us about the relationships between tipping elements in the Greenland ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet, how could what happens at one pole destabilize the other one?
2: So if we imagine that, for instance, the Greenland ice sheet would start to disintegrate and melt, then we would have, over a long time, of course, have a sea level rise of seven meters, at least seven meters, when the Greenland ice sheet would completely melt down. And that could destabilize some of the glaciers in West Antarctica, um, since they are marine-based, and are then less stable if the sea level would increase significantly. And that can lead to a destabilizing effect from the Greenland ice sheet directly to the Western Arctic ice sheet via sea level rise. But another interaction over the, over the AMOC would be that the Greenland ice sheet increases its freshwater influx to AMOC, and then if the AMOC would weaken, the Southern Ocean could accumulate some heat there, and that could also lead via the ocean Um, you add to a disintegration of the Western Arctic ice sheet.
1: So heat that doesn't go north due to a change in AMOC might flow further south of the equator, is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, or, or could just be held there.
1: Johannes Lohmann and many others say a faster rate of warming can bring tipping points into action sooner in time. Now, I know you didn't predict when all this was going to happen in this paper. That wasn't the purpose of it. But how did you handle uncertainties due to the speed of climate change?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's indeed a, a difficult question. And for that research, we kind of circumvent that. But we're tackling that question in a future, in a future research. What we did here is we hypothesized that um, global warming will stabilize at different levels of global warming, And what we took from that is we took the entire range from pre-industrial levels of global warming, so no warming, up to 8 degrees of global warming. And 8 degrees would be if we would follow a high-emission scenario until um, until 2,500, so the SSP 585. And for all these scenarios, we evaluated whether there are tipping events, tipping cascades, or whether there are not. And then we evaluated whether these for instance, the Greenland Ice would tip over a long time. So we're indeed not not predicting when something will tip, but we we would frame that more something like a risk assessment. So if we're say if we're having a global warming of two degrees, then we can assess the risk of the Greenland Ice to tip over a long period of time.
1: The mathematics and modeling in this paper are pretty difficult for a non-scientist to follow along, and there are a lot of uncertainties. How do we know this paper is more science than magic? How did you cross-check the results?
2: Mm -hmm. So one very important um, point here is to have a look at where the uncertainties are. And basically there are three different sources of uncertainties, The first one is the critical temperature regime, so uh, at which temperature does the Greenland ice sheet or the Western Arctic ice sheet or the AMOC tip. The second one is how strong are the interactions. So, for instance, how strong is the interaction between Greenland and the AMOC via increased freshwater influx? And third is what is the interaction structure? So is there an interaction between a weakening AMOC and a dieback of the amazon rainforest and is it a positive or negative link meaning is there then more precipitation or less precipitation and for each of these three different sources of uncertainty we performed a careful literature review and took the at least in our opinion the best data that is available for now so for instance for the critical temperature regimes we as we have spoken about in the very beginning we have taken data from the literature review by John Schelmhuber, Stefan Rahmstorff, and Ricardo Winkelmann for the interaction strength. We have taken the expert elicitation by Kriegler et al., 2009, but this is something that should be repeated in due time. And for the interaction structure, we have also taken the same um, expert elicitation. But you're right, there are a lot of uncertainties, and what we do then is we are simulating many, many millions of ensemble members of different starting conditions to run all different possibilities of how these uncertainties could play out. And then, in the end, we come to the results that we've published in this paper and also give the appropriate uncertainty with it.
1: And do you feel that these results are actually conservative?
2: In some way, I would feel that they are conservative, since we have taken large uncertainties here, and we have also taken into account a whole set of different, of different global warming scenarios. So, for instance, we've taken the global warming scenarios from zero degrees up to eight degrees above pre-industrial.
1: So please tell me if I understood your results properly. This new science suggests interactions between tipping elements enable critical thresholds at lower temperatures than if each system was considered individually. And that means, in an interactive Earth system, which we have, tipping points could arrive sooner than expected. Is that correct?
2: Yes, so that's one of the very important outcomes here. And in in one part of this research, we have indeed investigated the effect of the interaction between the tipping elements on their critical temperature thresholds. And that means that if we have interactions, and that's, what, and that's what we do, then these critical temperature regimes go down, meaning that they could indeed be tipping before the normal critical threshold if these elements would be individual.
1: Your team talks about, quote, domino-like interactions which also foster cascading nonlinear responses. Those sound like scary consequences, but what does it mean?
2: It means that the nature of tipping elements is nonlinear that's what we use as our as our working hypothesis and what has been found by earlier research and due to the interactions this nonlinear behavior of one tipping element can be translated to other ones and therefore if one nonlinear change happens in one tipping element that can be via the interaction translated to another one and usually there there are unfortunately adverse effects so negative effects
1: Yes, we see a lot of graphs where there's a smooth line up or a curve, but nonlinear is something that's harder for us to grasp. Is it sort of a sudden jump in, say, heat or or flooding or something like that?
2: For the tipping elements, this nonlinear behavior would mean that until this tipping point is reached, Not a lot of melt is happening, for instance, on the Greenland ice sheet, but if this tipping point is reached and surpassed in global warming, then there is a more rapid melt, even though that takes a a bit of time. Um, But then this melt is increased by internal internal feedbacks in a nonlinear way, and this tipping element would then um, melt down. What
1: other tipping elements would you like to add in further studies?
2: Well, what I would think could be quite interesting is to add something like the Arctic Summer Sea Ice, for instance, but also uh, the Eastern Arctic Ice Sheet and some of its basins could be interesting. So these are cryosphere entities that I'd like to add if I could. So for instance, on the Eastern Arctic Ice Sheet, there are some um, basins that are more vulnerable than other parts of the Eastern Arctic Ice Sheet, and they might already transgressed their threshold at lower temperatures than the entire East Antarctic ice sheet. And it would be interesting, in my view, to add those basins to the study, but also, as I said, the Arctic summer sea ice. And on top of that, it could also be interesting to add, if possible, a second class of, if you wish, tipping elements, which could be something like the permafrost, which would be a feedback process instead instead of a real tipping element.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're paying a lot of attention to permafrost thaw, not just here in Canada, but in Siberia and scientists around the world. I've had several guests talking about it.
2: Cool, great. That'd be, in a way, interesting to know if we would start um, releasing methane and other greenhouse gases from the permafrost, how that would feed back to the other tipping elements. That's something I would be interested and love to do allowed to study. However, unfortunately, I don't have the interactions yet, so either other data or other Earth system models could help here.
1: Your new paper was published June 3rd, 2021. Is that in time for it to be absorbed by world politicians and the experts attending the COP26 climate conference in Scotland in November? What should they, and, and what should all of us, learn about the way a rapidly warming planet really works?
2: So what I would think is that, is that it is really important to start acting now, since, as I said in the beginning, we're now in a zone of risk of starting to trigger some of these dangerous tipping elements. If they would be triggered, it would take a while for the consequences to play out, but still, if they're triggered, then it's way more difficult to get back. And that is something that should indeed be started in this decade, or in the next couple of years, optimally even in COP26.
1: It's relatively easy for me to talk about this in terms of science, but I have to tell you, this summer we had uh, terrible wildfires. We feared for our own home. We had a great heat dome. I've I Awful floods in Germany and Belgium this summer, and and so the weather is deteriorating around the world. And I know weather is not climate, but what I'm leading to here is how do you take this work in personally, Nico Wunderling?
2: Yeah, indeed, there are two different different factors here that might play out, and one of one of which that have we just talked about. That's uh, these are the tipping elements, and the other ones are extreme events such as heat waves over Canada. Or extreme flooding events, such as in Germany or Belgium, and yeah, in my view, this again makes clear that climate change is happening now, and that, that it 's time for action
1: I guess yes the The difference between extreme weather and tipping points is that tipping points implicate us in how committed the climate is towards this shift, and, and really, therefore, how much we, we should avoid them. We, we want to stay below those tipping points if we can, and Schellenhuber and others have given us some targets and some points to stay below. It's, it's up to us to see whether we can do it.
2: Indeed. That's something that future, well, not future, the current generation actually has to determine, whether we will be able to do that or whether we will remain in that zone of uncertainty or even surpass it.
1: From the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, or PIC, and Humboldt University in Berlin, we have been talking with the lead author and postdoc researcher Nico Wunderling. Find links to all the science we talked about, including this critical open-access paper. You can read it in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Nico, thank you for helping us understand these possible futures.
2: Yeah, Thank you very much, Alex. Great talking to you.
1: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio
0: for the World.
1: I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. From our interview with Nico Wunderling, in past ages, when the Greenland ice sheet melts, that initiates other tipping points, from changes to the North Atlantic currents that keep Europe warm in the winter, to rainfall over the Amazon, Greenland ice water even raises warm ocean waters eating away at the base of marine glaciers in Antarctica. It goes pole to pole. Research on the past and multiple present models tell us Greenland tips towards losing its ice caps somewhere around 1 to 1.5 degrees C warmer than pre-industrial times. We are already there. Greenland ice has begun to melt. As we warm further, other major Earth systems will tip in a cascade. A few scientists are beginning to say it. It is too late to stop climate change. Now the fight to keep the climate we need to survive begins. Yes, the COVID-19 pandemic rages on, despite all the comforting talk about reopening and it's over. The wave moves around, currently swamping Russia, Eastern Europe and parts of Asia. About 2,000 Americans are killed by COVID daily. That's not big news, hey? It's high in the UK, too. No doubt the tens of thousands of people flying to Scotland, for the COP26 climate conference, will spread more disease around the world. We see what a single novel virus can do to our lives and the world economy. Now picture a whole age of ancient viruses returning to the surface of the earth. That's just part of the package of threats emerging from the far north as the permafrost thaws. We need to investigate.
2: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: The novel COVID-19 virus dramatically changed all our lives, that's for sure. Now we learn dangerous microbes could be released in the far north, which is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. Could thawing permafrost release old diseases like smallpox, Certainly, forever toxic chemicals are returning out of the glaciers and permafrost. So is radioactive waste dumped in the frozen Arctic. Dr. Kimberly R. Miner specializes in these issues. She led the new paper, Emergent Biogeochemical Risks from Arctic Permafrost Degradation. Kimberly is a climate scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. She is also a firefighter and emergency planner. From Pasadena... Kimberly Rainminer, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so
0: much for having me.
1: We're talking about things re-emerging from frozen ground that covers about a quarter of the Earth's surface. It includes old life forms and more recent industrial waste. Let's start at the micro level. Do you think COVID-19 spotlights the need to better understand microbial life, including from thawing Arctic lands?
0: There's been a number of folks in the epidemiological and policy communities who have worked their entire lives to get a hold on emergent uh, viruses, diseases, and bacteria. Um, but I do think that COVID has thrust it into the international community conversation a little bit more.
1: Okay, so in the Bible, Methuselah was the oldest human, supposedly living 969 years, and we give that name to an old tree in California that's about 5,000 years old. What are Methuselah organisms in the Arctic environment?
0: So a great question. That was a, a cheeky way that we were referring to microbes that are also known as extremophiles. These are organisms that are able to live in really challenging conditions, maybe really hot, really cold temperature, high-pressure environments. Um, And they're able to live up to a million years that we've discovered so far in permafrost, which is in some places a high-pressure, low-temperature environment, some places just a low-temperature environment.
1: But how can anything stay viable in any form for tens of thousands of years in bitter cold? How is that possible?
0: So there's a number of different strategies uh, that organisms use, and we do discuss this in the paper. Some organisms have lipid membranes that they employ. Some of them use methodologies to update and maintain their DNA. There's a number of different ways that organisms do this, but it's something that we have seen in a variety of ecosystems on the planet, and that is also a potential for the kind of organisms that we might find on other planets.
1: Well, we need to keep our balance and not fall into irrational fears. Your study and other scientists do suggest that the chances of a COVID-like disease coming out of thawing permafrost is, quote, improbable. But haven't there been cases of strange diseases?
0: So the movement from a, a physical substrate To a vector, um, a host body, if you will, is is not exactly a linear progress, right? So in the anthrax outbreak that I think you're referring to in Siberia, um, the thought was that it was actually spread by reindeer uh, to the human host. And so there's a number of different ways that these organisms travel, and it's really important to have a warm body vector in many of the cases. So It would take a lot, let's just say, um, to go from a falling permafrost substrate to a human environment, um, specifically one that is not co-located with the permafrost in the far north.
1: Is it also probable that some new life forms emerging from the frozen north will be helpful?
0: Yeah, we cover a couple of these in our paper. Um, There are some findings that suggest that there are microbes that are uh, evolving to take care of or, um, I guess, consume or change toxic waste. So whether that's oil or it's other types of organic and inorganic uh, human-derived chemicals, it looks like there may be some adaptations that these microbes are able to employ to help remove them from the environment. Although that is not what we should be relying on, I think it's probably a better idea to keep Uh, toxic waste where they belong and not in the environment.
1: Is it possible some Arctic microbes will go extinct as their environment rapidly warms and the permafrost thaws?
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple different ways that this could play out. Um, Organisms that have maintained uh, stasis could go extinct. Um, There is a, a potential that they may compete with modern organisms that have different adaptations than the organisms constrained in permafrost. And we don't really know how that's going to play out. We don't know how things are going to respond to climate change, if the extremophilic microbes are going to be able to survive better under challenging climate conditions, um, or if they will, as you mentioned, survive worse and potentially go extinct.
1: The key here, I think, is the rate. Last March on Radio Ecoshock, Johannes Lohmann from the University of Copenhagen warned the rate of climate change may be more important than the amount when you get to impacts. And in 2019, I interviewed Canadian scientist Merit Turetsky about abrupt permafrost thaw. What did you find about the rate of warming when it comes to permafrost releases?
0: Yeah, thank you. So we have another paper coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, Merit is the co-author on that. And we are really interested in this abrupt permafrost thaw dynamic where you may have um, a loss of ice and therefore structure for the permafrost in a really rapid time period. Um, You might lose a whole side, a whole cliff of permafrost, for example, in in a couple weeks to a couple months. And the thing that we were interested in in this paper with those dynamics is that That potentially means that deeper microbes that have been buried for more time could be emergent in a rapid event um, and then potentially be transported downstream or into the local atmosphere. And at that point, it's a little bit difficult to know how things will progress. But these abrupt warming events are a challenge because they are, as I mentioned, unpredictable, but also have the potential to those microbes that are not co-evolved in these ecosystems uh, in a really rapid way.
1: Well, let's talk about all our pollution dropping down and landing into the Arctic ice and into the Arctic frozen lands and, and then becoming part of them. But now they're starting to thaw. What kinds of toxic chemicals are emerging as it does thaw?
0: So I've been with you before, Alex, talking about DDT and PCBs um, emerging from glaciers, and that was a study we did in Alaska looking at the impacts of DDT in the local ecosystems and risk to humans. For this paper, we indexed uh, nuclear waste and nuclear fallout from permafrost containment areas and from scuttled nuclear submarines mercury and other heavy metals that are transported through a variety of um, substrates and animals. And then you've also got a number of organic chemicals that, like you said, travel atmospherically and then are deposited in the far far north to be entrained both in ice and in permafrost. So there's a, a couple different categories that we go through in the paper, but the bottom line is that none of these compounds You want to really release into the Arctic environment. And in some ways, one of the more pristine remaining environments on the planet uh, could be impacted by this surge of, of toxic materials as the permafrost continues to thaw.
1: Yeah, it's kind of bad news. Some of the chemicals, like PCBs, were banned, and DDT is very much regulated. We thought, well, that should end the problem. But now it's sort of coming back to haunt us. Are we already measuring, for example, increased mercury contamination in Arctic plants and animals?
0: Yeah, I think increased mercury contamination has been a concern for a while, to the point where um, folks who do a lot of fishing in the far north are asked to consider mercury consumption regularly. Um, There's a paper that we referenced by uh, Kevin Schaefer and his team looking at mercury flow throughout the permafrost ecosystem. So some of that is... Uh, you know normal natural from rock and some of that is deposited by humans but this increased flow of both water and materials as the permafrost goes from being a hard frozen substrate to kind of like a muddy soup is a definitely an emerging concern that we were trying to track and start talking about more closely.
1: Kimberly, why are the levels of persistent organic pollutants higher in plants and animals than what could be found and measured in the surrounding thawing soil?
0: So persistent organic pollutants have a couple little interesting behaviors that they do. So one of them is that when you disperse uh, a POP, whether it's PCB or DDT, into the atmosphere, they travel around really well until they hit what has been termed a cold wall, in the Arctic and Antarctic, where they're uh, been taken into snow or rain and they fall to Earth. And then once they uh, fall to Earth, they're really interested in, I guess, maybe interested isn't the right word. We don't need to answer more for them, but they move towards lipids. And so they can be um, uptaken by plants and animals, especially those that have a lot of lipids, a lot of fats in the far north and then contained within those cells for a good amount of time, often until the host gives it to another uh, organism through a maternal lineage or consumption, or the the host dies, and then it goes back into the system and can be transported again. And these POPs, they don't really degrade um, on short-time scales, so there's a lot of movement um, that can happen between organisms and between plants and animals, and they end up being recycled and the toxic properties are maintained.
1: Is it possible that chemical releases in a fast-warming Arctic could even affect clouds in the far north?
0: Yeah, it's possible. That's one thing that we're looking at. Um, The ability of clouds to form is based on a number of different dynamics that are still very much under exploration, um, depending on the ecosystem, but potentially sediments or little um, pieces of soil that are from the ground in the far north could help seed clouds, and then that could be um, the same for uh, chemicals that are entrained in those sediments. So the, the sediment would go into the air and help feed clouds, and then those chemicals would have the ability to move out of the far north again.
1: This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. We are investigating threats coming from a rapidly thawing Arctic lands. Our guest is Dr. Kimberly Rainminer, lead author of a new study on emergent threats in the permafrost. In 1990, the Soviet Coast Guard arrested the crew of the vessel MV Greenpeace. The activists were heading to the remote Arctic island of Nova Zemlya, where nuclear-powered ships and all sorts of highly radioactive waste was dumped by the USSR. They thought eternal cold would store it, and now we see it won't. Talk to us about the nuclear burden left in Russia and how climate change could release it.
0: Thanks, Alex. So this is a really interesting thing that we found as we were going through documents, that there's a number of different ways that a lot of the Arctic powers have deposited nuclear waste into um, the oceans and soils of the Arctic. Um, so that includes scuttling nuclear submarines. So that would be leaving a nuclear submarine to sink to the bottom of the ocean. There seems to be an indication that there was some testing of bombs and nuclear devices within the permafrost. So an area would be hollowed out, there would be testing, and then it would be closed down to store the fallout. So You can imagine that with any kind of permafrost thaw that has entrained fallout, um, that it might move into into the larger ecosystem. Um, the U.S. also scuttled a base, Camp Century, in Greenland, and that's right next to um, a nuclear uh, airplane or an airplane carrying nuclear weapons uh, that crashed. So really peppered throughout the Arctic, there's a number of different crafts and accidents and bases um, that have nuclear waste somehow captured within them that are potentially going to be released as things continue to warm and thaw. So that's something that we recommend needs to be watched very closely and mitigated as best as these nations are able to in the near time.
1: Old people remember the first icebreaker to cross the Arctic Ocean, Now there's a polar shipping route for several months of the year, and tourists do cruises there too. Does this increase the risk of transporting a newly released microbe or other toxic materials from that thawing permafrost?
0: You know, one of the things that we mention is that the the probabilistic models are really not there as far as human transport, but I think it's It follows that the more people who interact with an environment, the more impact they have and the more impact the environment has on them. So, for example, transporting soil in the treads of tires or shoes that could move things. It could be samples that are taken or um, backpacks that are filled with some kind of material, whether it's plants or animals. So, yeah, I think that the more that we interact with the Arctic in a a more populated way, more people travel to the Arctic, there increases the opportunity for uh, a negative interaction or a higher risk profile.
1: A number of scientists brought back ancient microbes to university labs, trying to revive them. First, have they done it? And second, isn't that a danger in itself, say, from accidental release?
0: You know, we do mention that um, although I'm sure people are following proper lab techniques and sterility requirements, it is really important to think about these things and think about uh, the the dangers and risk profiles. So it is an important topic to discuss, but just like any of the epi- epidemiological labs around uh, the U.S., there are standards in place, and it's just important for people to follow them.
1: You know, you work at uh, JPL. It's it's almost like coming back from space to come back from this new Arctic in a way.
0: You know, and we are making that analogy. We are pioneering some new studies on permafrost using tools uh, from the Mars rover, and we're interested in understanding if the permafrost could be a proxy for microbes, how to look for extraterrestrial microbes on other planets and maybe that this would be a good way to understand where to start.
1: That is so cool. So talk to us about the risk of antibiotic resistance in emerging Arctic organisms.
0: So a number of groups have done work looking at the potential for antibiotic resistance, and they have found some microbes that predate antibiotics that do have uh, resistance for a variety of different reasons. So that is a concern. It's definitely something that, again, needs to be, and that we need to be aware of. At present, these microbes are not really interacting with humans. There's no reason that it should become a problem for them to interact with humans. But it's probably not ideal to have an increase of microbes that are antibiotic resistant in the environment. So that's something that needs to be discussed, I think, and that we're hoping to continue to raise as, a, as an issue.
1: In all of this, we have to know the front line for this experiment in polar warming are the indigenous people of the Arctic, and this is another unfair impact of global warming on those who had the least emissions of carbon, chemicals, or nuclear materials, certainly. In this and coming generations, they may pay the first price. Does that increase our responsibility to act?
0: Well, I am not a policy expert, so I guess my personal opinion is that People who are suffering from climate change do need to be considered strongly, and it needs to be something that all nations are willing to work towards, is protecting people who are dealing with climate change right now, just as we would hope they would continue to do so in the future. But our work really hopes to inform the current state of the science so that policymakers can make the best decisions for the constituents that they represent.
1: When I recorded permafrost scientists at the 2012 American Academy uh, annual meeting, they viewed thawing permafrost as a steady process, uh, thawing the ground incrementally, likely over thousands of years. Almost 10 years later, how does that sit with what we really know?
0: So there is a steady process of permafrost thaw, and oftentimes refreeze. freeze. There's what we call an active layer, which is named that because it is the most active layer of permafrost, right? So every summer there would be thaw, and then every uh, winter there would be refreeze. But the model that Merit Trotsky suggested uh, with abrupt thaw has really changed that. Uh, we know now that there are more pulse events of thaw going on in addition to these gradual thaw dynamics. And that's something that all of the communities, from modeling to remote sensing to forecasting or trying to get a better hold of, because it introduces a new and more unpredictable dynamic into a permafrost thaw system.
1: And it's not a plain system. When you look at maps of actual permafrost thaw, they're like islands of them and and whole areas pop up and other areas are not, and there's all different geology underneath it. There's a lot of work to do. What would you say some of the research priorities for the next 10 years should be?
0: So I think there's so many that have to do with the Arctic, specifically with the work that we were just looking at. I think it's important to get a better handle on which microbes are where, uh, what the profiles look like. So what are the oldest microbes look like and what are their mechanisms for survival, um, all the way up to the most recent and how could they potentially interact with the environment. We're very interested in doing flow modeling as well, so understanding how some of the anthropogenic chemicals, nuclear waste, have the potential to move and flow throughout the environment, whether they're transported downstream in water or they're transported into the near atmosphere. As always, international collaboration on monitoring a huge piece of land um, like the Arctic represents is really critical and is going to be a really important part of moving forward as a global community. So that's something that we really strongly advocate for, is building and maintaining those strong relationships.
1: From the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, we've been speaking with Dr. Kimberly Rain-Minor. Find links to Kimberly and the Nature Communications paper, Emergent Biogeochemical Risks from Arctic Permafrost Degradation, all in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Kimberly, thank you for keeping watch over that cold frontier.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Laid up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. .org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. Scientists writing reports for the United Nations have been cautious, too cautious, for a long time, 25 years. Under the heat gun this year, with the fires and all the extreme storms and floods and heat, the latest U.N. report finally admits we will pass two degrees of warming before the year 2100. We are heading over the edge. Confirming our interview with Kimberly Minor, the October 22nd UN press release headline is stark. Polar Changes Risk Unstoppable and Permanent, Climate Breakdown, Warned Scientists. Let me read that again. Polar Changes Risk Unstoppable and Permanent, Climate Breakdown, Warned Scientists. That's from the United Nations. They say, quote, Irreversible melting of the polar ice sheets and unstoppable increases in sea level will result from the continued current growth in human carbon dioxide emissions. End quote. Yes, like aliens arriving, new Methuselah life forms are emerging from long frozen ground in the Arctic. Some are naturally immune to antibiotics, others might help other living things, even us, we don't know. It's a new frontier, as deep time comes to the surface again, thanks to us heating up the Arctic. In Siberia, fields that were flat enough to play sports are now full of bubbled-up soil, interspersed with boggy channels. The underground has collapsed, as former ice thawed and drained away. Buildings are cracking open. Whole forests of trees are falling over. Locals call them drunken trees, or drunken forests. The longest web of aging pipelines in the world are built on permafrost. Those are in Alaska, but especially across Russia. As the ground collapses or bubbles up, the pipelines are twisted. Then they break open, pouring oil or gas into fragile living systems of the north. This decade looks stormy in so many ways. Remember when guests used to say, way back in 2007,
0: We have ten years to stop climate change.
1: Well, time is up. We are not making it. Maybe it is time to be a doomer. At least we can be friendly, peaceful doomers, helpful. Maybe we can try to slow down the juggernaut intent on wrecking the future. You may be among those who help usher in a new age. Let it be so. I still have love, and I pass that on to you. It's tough love, okay but it is still love. I'm Alex Smith. I am grateful for your support here on Radio Eco Shop.